Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Miss the show? No worries. On point and on this podcast, we're going to dive into Bill 21, and I will call out the utter hypocrisy of our leaders on this very un-Canadian law. We'll talk about symbols. Symbols you do only so much. So how will this diplomatic boycott actually stop the torture and genocide of Muslim minorities? Well, it won't. Because we're doing the very bare minimum of what needed to be done a long time ago, which is to stop looking away from the crimes we know China's committing. So we'll talk to a human rights advocate whose family escaped the region where these camps are, and she now spends her life fighting to stop this genocide. She wants an all-out boycott, saying that, you know, complying with this at all is just enabling this kind of genocide. We'll talk about foodflation. It's real, it's here, and it is not going to stop anytime soon. We are in this perfect storm of variables driving up costs on everything, but now it is hitting our dinner table with costs of food predicted to go up another 7% in 2022. It's these butter and bread issues that are keeping Canadians awake, and we can't afford the bread and butter anymore. Justin Trudeau attending the Global Summit for Democracies hosted by the President of the United States. President Xi declaring it's a it's a joke and maybe he can laugh at these things because, you know, so far the world's biggest democracies have carried a twig and walked very softly, allowing China's ruthless aggression to spread like cancer. But between this and the threat of Russia, these leaders are going to have plenty to talk about, but it's the action they take that will spell the future of our democracies, which is under threat. So we'll talk to Terry Glavin about that. Let us get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. At the beginning of the pandemic, the agency was unable to confirm quarantine compliance for 66% of travelers arriving in Canada. Although we found that the percentage had dropped to 37%, this is not a success story. The agency's inability to confirm whether more than one-third of travelers complied with quarantine orders remains a significant problem. Just a little bit, yes, confirmation that the Trudeau government couldn't find its head from its butt when it came to quarantining, and yet... No one gets fired. Alex Pearson with you on what has turned out to be a fairly busy Thursday, December 9th. Yeah, we're just getting word in on Jussie Smollett, the... I guess he's not really famous anymore. He'd be infamous now, but he is uh, guilty on five of the six counts of his case. No jail time probably for this guy. But, uh, you know, when you think about the allegations and the severity of them and what it could have led to across a very racially divided um, and tense United States, uh, you know, it's an interesting case. But we'll talk about that because we're just getting the information um, right now. But, you know, color me shocked, you know, that public health was clueless. When it came, of course, to quarantining people in the first wave of this pandemic. And apparently they're still clueless because we got confirm- confirmation today um, that this whole charade of quarantining travels, travelers to keep COVID at bay was just a complete giant display of health kabuki theater. And the Auditor General lays out a pretty scathing report that confirms 
that they lost track of tens of thousands of travelers ordered to stay quarantined. They lost 75% of the records of travelers. I mean, they didn't even bother to follow up on those who had positive tests to see if, oh, yeah, did you quarantine? And, and maybe that's because they lost so many tests, 30% of tests they lost. And to this day, they continue losing tests. And this report should not surprise anyone. I mean, Tom from Blacklocks and I, we have talked about a lot of this stuff. This just confirms what we already know. And that is the only consistency in this pandemic is the never ending inconsistencies and screw ups of health measures that we are always told the strictest and the toughest in the world. And yet we somehow still go along with this charade. I mean, right now, there are hundreds of Canadians, you know, coming in on uh, from African countries. They're flying with all sorts of people from all over the world. And yet just the Canadians are being locked up into these hotels. And we're hearing about this, the same kinds of issues laid out in the AG report today. And I'm not telling them to do anything. But if I saw this report today, I'd be like, see ya. Here's my get out of quarantine jail, uh, you know, document, because this is crazy. So we're going to talk about this because we are asked over and over and over again to do our part. We keep doing our part only to learn months later that those in charge are clueless and incompetent and have not done their jobs because these measures did nothing to keep us safe, like nothing. It was all just a charade. But before um, I dug into the damning auditor's report, I was actually digging into the issue of Bill 21, which, again, is back into the spotlight with an elementary school teacher losing her teaching job because she wears a hijab. I mean, everyone knew that these cases would start happening. And yet the federal leaders cannot offload this political hot potato fast enough, right? And Aaron O'Toole uh, spoke this morning. He was asked several times for his reaction. And instead of giving a, a, a clear answer to an obvious case of discrimination, he kept kind of offloading this on Quebec, saying, well, it's a secular law. You know, it's for them to debate. Well, no, it is not. Bill 21 goes against the values of our entire country, you know, that a Canadian can't express their religion whether it's Muslim or Sikh or Christian or Jew, is un-Canadian. I mean, period. It just is. And yet not one leader will stand up against it because, oh, no, no, they don't want to upset vote-rich Quebec. And so I thought O'Toole had an opportunity today to take leadership on this issue and show, you know, yeah, the party is open tent, open tent and, it, and he just didn't do that. Secularism is a debate that's been underway in Quebec for probably the last 15 to 20 years, and it's for the National Assembly of Quebec to decide. But I can rest assured that uh, federally, we would never apply a bill like this uh, on a federal jurisdiction. Well, no, of course you wouldn't. The simple answer for politicians is this. Bill 21 is wrong. It doesn't represent Canadian values. It's discriminatory. And it will be abolished. <laughs> and O'Toole couldn't say that. Which, again, leads to question after question after question. And he can't answer it. I mean, look, I'll cut the guy a break. It would be nice if the media could demand the same kind of accountability from Justin Trudeau. Because certainly Mr. O'Toole is not the only offender of hypocrisy on this issue. Um, you know, we've got a prime minister 
who will tweet within a nanosecond of even a hint of Islamophobia, and yet nothing about this case, not a word, and said Christian Freeland was merged out today with a perfectly crafted don't offend Quebec answer. The Prime Minister was very clear during the election campaign, um, asked about uh, C-21 on many occasions. He was very clear about our government's position. And of course, that remains our government's position. I don't even know what the position is because Trudeau has been clear as mud on Bill 21. And that's because Quebec is hands off as he's, you know, as far as he's concerned. I mean, think about this. Do you really think that Justin Trudeau would stay quiet if Doug Ford or Jason Kenney came up with such a lie? Not on your bloody life. He would be on the rooftop screaming about hate and division, that diversity is our strength. He would declare that hate has no place in Canada, and yet clearly it does. Because diversity is being punished in vote-rich Quebec. And we get nothing from Trudeau because, oh yeah, votes. And I get why reporters challenged O'Toole on his stance. He's trying to convince voters his party is open to every sex and religion and race. So he's got to walk the talk. And he did not. But bottom line is, Mr. Trudeau, who continually talks about all these, you know, um, you know, wedge issues and, and talks about hate and all this. I mean, he's he, he's weaponized identity politics in his favor and he says nothing about this. So he's a hypocrite. And then the one leader you think would be stopping this, the one who would be directly targeted by this discriminating, discriminating law, you would think that. Jagmeet Singh would have stood up to this, and yet here's his response. Simply because of the way she looked and the way she dressed, she is no longer able to teach those kids. That is everything that's wrong with this bill. That highlights it. And on a personal note, I know what that's like to to feel like you don't belong because of the way you look, and to not be able to do what you love because of the way you look. Mm -hmm. And yet he won't challenge Bill 21. Because, oh, yeah, votes. So a pox on all their houses, I say, because we live in a, a time, this hypersensitive time when saying the wrong pronoun can end a career, yet a woman loses her job because of a religious garment, and all we get is, you know, gee, shucks, that's too bad. And I don't know why we put up with this. Because it was raised during the election, and not one of these leaders would condemn the bill. I mean, they stammered and stuttered, oh, it's wrong and wrong, but they don't stop it. And sure, it's a provincial issue, but make no mistake, If any of these leaders thought it would get them votes, they'd have joined the legal challenge now underway. But instead, they're using the courts to kind of evade taking an actual position. But rest assured, if the court rules against Bill 21, they're all going to race to a microphone and say how awful it was and how awful it is. And they never agreed with it. And it should have been stopped. Like this just isn't about religious freedoms. To me, it's about leadership. It's about standing on things that threaten our values. It's about standing when others sit. And these days, it's pretty clear that political leaders will only take action if it improves their electoral freedoms and fortunes. And when you look at the liberties and the freedoms we have in this country, they are precious yet fleeting. We have seen how easily governments take liberty with our freedoms during this pandemic, all under the guise of health. But Bill 21 has been done right out in the open. And by allowing Quebec to 
openly limit religious freedoms will only lead to other politicians looking to limit other freedoms that we assume are enshrined in our charter. Today, it's religion, but next, it might be something you care about. And now we know that if it's done in Quebec, no one in charge will stop it because pandering for votes is more important than standing up for what's right for this country. And so for all the preaching of no tolerance to intolerance, here we have a case of it wide out in the open, and it reveals that politicians are all talk and no walk. And I find it just really gross. So what will a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing games actually do? Probably nothing. I mean, it may hurt President Xi's ego. He's already promised payback to the United States and on News Canada was joining this uh, shared strategy. He basically shrugged his shoulders and said Justin Trudeau wasn't invited anyway. But how does this help the Uyghur Muslims, these Muslim minorities who are being jailed and tortured? Again, it won't. I'm glad to finally see people are, are paying attention to this, but we have had categorical evidence for years that these camps are real. So why are world leaders who like to say phrases like never again actually allowing this to happen again? And the Trudeau government stated quite a few times on Wednesday it's taking a leadership role on this issue, yet it, used, it refuses to use the word genocide when talking about these Muslim minorities. And yet all the MPs in the Liberal Party actually skipped a vote last February to declare what China's doing is a genocide. Trudeau called it a loaded term. Well, yeah, if the term fits, call it. But human rights groups have been fighting for a total worldwide boycott of these games, saying anything less would make the world complicit in this crime. Uyghur Canadian Zumratai Arkin is a program and advocacy manager at the World Uyghur Congress. She is in Germany and joins us now. Good to have you. Hi, good to be here. Thank you. So just for a little background for our listeners, your parents actually fled the region of eastern Turkestan and came to Canada back in 2003, bringing uh, you along with them and your family because they saw the danger coming, correct? Yes, my parents knew because they went through um, the Cultural Revolution under Mao and they saw that uh, there was an ongoing, you know, systematic discrimination against the Uyghurs in East Turkestan. And that's why they sought political asylum in Canada in 2003. And in 2009, I know that you witnessed, um, you know, the atrocities of the Chinese government carry out during the Urmkwe uh, riots, which was in the capital city of Xinjiang, where this is a Uyghur's autonomous region, is where these people are being tortured uh, and jailed. So you have witnessed the Chinese government's uh, oppressive and, and torturous behavior up close. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was born and raised in Urumqi, actually. Um, and um, obviously, when I was young, I, I wasn't able to notice what was happening. But as we went for the first time in 2009, it, it, you know, we happened to arrive during the uprising, during the massacre, um, actually in the middle of it, uh, because it started on July 5th and we arrived on July 7th, which, I mean, the, the whole incident lasted for over a week. And I saw um, how clearly we were being treated as you know, problem uh, as a problem, basically, how we were portrayed as the terrorists, as, you know, the poor people or thieves or anything negative that you could say about someone that was the Uyghurs. Um, and I, I mean, we were racially profiled at the airport and um, there was this clear distinction between Uyghurs and the rest of the population, uh, most distinctly the between Uyghurs and Han Chinese. So for me, that was a, that was a wake up uh, moment that I just thought 
well, I'm really being treated as a second-class citizen in my own homeland. So that's really when um, I, you know, started getting into activism. And so, uh, you know, the, the diplomatic boycott that we have seen um, enacted in the last couple of days, this is really the bare minimum we can do. Um, your organization and many other human rights groups have been calling for a total boycott. Are, are, are you okay with the move that Canada has made in the other, um, you know, United States and Australia, or, or should it be more? Absolutely. I think um, the, you know, the recent announcements from different countries, they, it's very much welcomed by our communities, but I think there's space for more. And I think if, if, you know, genocide is not our red line, then, you know, I don't think anything else would will be. Um, and I think it's important for, for countries and all stakeholders, which includes corporate sponsors, broadcasters, athletes, to really, you know, look at this, with their humanity and and think, well, there's a genocide going uh, going on right now. I, I mean, I'm in London actually. The Uyghur Tribunal, which is an independent uh, tribunal that was set up to investigate into these crimes, just announced the verdict this morning that they confirmed that it's actually a genocide. So I think in this context, um, all stakeholders must look at it, look at the situation very urgently, and say we have to do everything in our power to stop this ongoing genocide, but also do everything possible to not be complicit in it. And I, in my personal view and in our organization's view, participating into these Olympics would be, um, you know, act, kind of saying to China, well, you're carrying out a genocide, but that's okay with us because you still get to host the games. Right. And, and in fact, it's just feeding into China's um uh, propaganda. But, you know, we've had evidence, as you well know, since 2016, showing these camps. We have the evidence. We have decisions like what uh, we got this morning uh, uh, of calling this a uh, genocide. We're starting to see movement on this now. And certainly it's been rushed into the uh, spotlight by Peng Shua, uh, the tennis player. But this has been going on for years. Why is it not seen for the humanitarian crisis it is it is by world leaders. Is it just that they are so scared to do anything when it comes to China? I mean, I think there's just so much at stake for them. It's, um, I think it's, it's, I'm not sure if they're scared to do anything on China because I think there's great strength in numbers. And I think if, you know, um, like-minded countries really uh, did something together, it would be really, powerful and there would be some sort of safety in that but um i think there's also a lot of money involved um and also the the issue of i think a full boycott has been very controversial in the past just because you know people keep saying it will punish the athletes which i mean it's true it will definitely punish the athletes because they've been training their entire lives for 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 this specific moment but at, at the same time i think we have to remember our humanity and I think for me personally I don't want to live in a world where you know all these different individuals and and corporate you know um, entities tell us that during a genocide business should go as usual Uh, I don't think this is this should be the case Um, and I think uh, I mean world leaders they they mostly are scared to 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 commit to that because they are and others um, and sorry, um, for for the sake of, of athletes, but I think th- there's probably more behind that. Yeah, we've seen a number of big corporate brands. Uh, Nike, in particular, has been uh, recently. I think Apple has been pointed out. Uh, Lululemon has been cited. 
um, you know, for using uh, the forced labor of, of Uyghur Muslims in, in their manufacturing. Um, these things are coming into the, into the spotlight thanks to voices like Ennis Cantor, the Boston Celtic player who has been, um, yes. you know, really championing uh, this. But again, you know, this is an opportunity with the whole world watching these games uh, that they could actually start learning about this kind of stuff. I mean, if they want to do a boycott, it's uh, boycott the brands or boycott. I mean, there's lots of things individually people can do. What what would you be telling the international audience? Um, you know, if we're not going to go the full way of a boycott, what would you like to see or what can people do if they want to actually, you know, uh, start helping in this particular issue? Let's have a conversation, honestly. Let's have a conversation, you know, just uh, put our guards down. And I think um, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm a human being and I don't only speak on behalf of, the, of my organization. I also speak as an Uyghur Canadian who's lost everything. I've lost my homeland. I've lost my right to return to my homeland. I've, re- I've lost my family members. I have over 40 uh, family members that have been missing since 2017. Some of them are in camps. Some of them are just you know, disappeared. So for me, it's important that people understand that there are personal stories and, and you know, sacrifices here that we were uh, obliged to make. And I think that's why we want to engage in a real genuine conversation with athletes. Um, you know, they, if they, you know, at the end of the day, it's their choice um, if they want to go, go compete there or not. But I think they should go there at least knowing the background story. They should know what is happening on the ground and then, um, you know, take a decision and make it, uh, make a decision and, um, that's why we've been engaged, wanting to engage with, with athletes. We, we're trying. It's just been very difficult to kind of pierce that circle. So if, you know, people, influential people can get through that circle, then please reach out to us. Uh, we would love to just have a frank conversation with these athletes. Yeah, if, if not for any other reason than like to support a tennis player or a whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay, but again, this has been going on for a very long time, to, you know, over a million people, men, women, babies, children. Um, you know, we just can't look away. Just quickly before I let you go, will your group and other human rights groups be um, doing any kind of action uh, during these games or protests? You mean on the ground in Beijing? Yeah, I, I don't think you, obviously you can't go back mm-hmm. in there, but are there any, um, you know, uh, movements afoot? Um, we have a lot of actions planned around the Olympics, but we cannot unfortunately go to China. Yeah. Um, that would be risky for us. And also, I don't think we would even be granted visa. So, uh, but we are planning a lot of things. Um, so tomorrow, um, I'm in London. So tomorrow for Human Rights Day, we're actually delivering a petition to the uh, UK um, Olympic uh, Association. And um, there, there will be similar uh, actions. We have a Global Day of Action coming up in, in January and uh, many others leading up to the games. Well, it would certainly be risky for anyone to raise a voice on Chinese soil. It'll be interesting to see if any of the athletes do or anybody does, but no question, we'll continue talking about it. I very much appreciate your time on this. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. That is Zomrutai Arkin, who is a Uyghur Canadian who now spends her life advocating on this particular issue because it is clearly very personal to her. So we will continue talking about This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So dairy is one of the big ones. We're estimating it's going to jump by six to eight percent. So you're right over the, you know, we're saying $960 over the course of the year. So $20 a week is, is what it's going to cost the average Canadian family. The ongoing COVID pandemic is is still disrupting supply chains and the production of food. The the transportation issues through Southern BC is a challenge, and and the Canadian dollar dropping, as you just mentioned, and and oil prices have come down, but they're still up over last year. So it's it's sort of a an unfortunate perfect storm of events that are just contributing to food prices increasing. Oh yeah, we are what we eat. It's just that we can't afford what we eat anymore. So the um annual food price reports out and it serves a, a wake-up call to Canadians who are going to see food costs soar into the new year by another five to seven percent which as you heard works out to about a thousand bucks more for a family of four that is not a small jump especially if you're on a fixed income because it's always the healthy stuff that's the most expensive and it's always the first to be cut from the list if forced to cut and we're already seeing people move away from things like meat and fish but dairy I mean eight pounds for butter it's a lot, but it is being driven by a number of factors. And Trudeau keeps talking about childcare and affordable housing, but it's the bread and butter issues he's got to start focusing on. John Keogh is founder and managing principal with Chantella, also a professor at practice of McGill University, Center for Convergence and Health and Economics. Good to have you, John. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. Well, I have you on because you're all things, you know, all things about supply chains. Um, so there, there's like a perfect storm. There's the labor shortages. There's the supply chain issues. There's inflation. Um, this is this is going to be a very expensive 2022. Yes, absolutely. You're right. It's the perfect storm. I think the two major factors coming together here are both uh, climate change effects and pandemics and you know, in Canada now, we're learning new new terms, uh, atmospheric rivers and heat domes, as well as the usual and unusual droughts, floods and fires. So this is potentially catastrophic for some families in Canada. And it's not going to, I mean, we've talked for a long time about supply chains. I never thought I would talk so much about supply chains, but you had been waving the warning flags before the pandemic that they were, you know, they, they were they were vulnerable. Um, and they're going to continue to be vulnerable, I think, much longer than than this pandemic. You're, you're absolutely right, Alex. So what, what climate change and, and now the pandemic has exposed are weaknesses in our global supply ecosystems. And those weaknesses are coming to the forefront right now. We're very, very weak in, our, in how we uh, manage our logistics worldwide. We re- rely on just-in-time to uh, replenish our stocks. Uh, and we're buying products from around the world. We don't actually know where they're coming from in a lot of cases. So when there's pressure now in the system for environmental, sustainable, and governance factors, the ESG factors, you know, industry are going to have to dig deep over the next couple of years to try to figure out where did my products come from, who supplied them, under what conditions, and so on. Yeah, and we already have a shortage of truck drivers across North America. We've got truck drivers who, in about a couple of weeks, if they don't have a vaccine, are going to be taken out of rotation. I I, I think this is a disaster waiting to happen. Um, I, I think these health measures, you know, people can hold their nose. But if we take that many truckers off the road, it, it will cause chaos. 
Yeah, absolutely. And there's something else, Alex, that uh, I'm not sure if we talked about this before, but the U.S. trucking industry are, are claiming that there are short 80,000 drivers. But what many mm. people haven't uh, on their radar is that around the start, or just about two months before the start of the pandemic, uh, new federal laws went into place in the U.S. for mandatory drug testing. And up to uh, September, October this year, uh, since the, the start of, of 2020, you know, in less than two years, 72,000 drivers, truck drivers, have been taken off the roads in the U.S. They failed drug yeah. testing. Yeah, geez. Yeah, that's something we have not talked about that. But, you know, it's interesting because... Um, we knew this was coming. No one in charge bothered to ever kind of figure it out. Now we're in this thing. This report is really only a projection. So these numbers could actually go higher. They, they could for sure. And the impact of them could be uh, much more serious. The interesting thing from an academic perspective is that they're using uh, artificial intelligence and various machine learning algorithms, which is very, very interesting. And it you know, they can develop more accurate models than I think the government could at this point. But if we look at the impact of this, Alex, to, you know, people on fixed income set, and if people with faith-based diets in Canada that may rely on food banks, they're going to have to make a choice uh, between, you know, survival and their faith. Uh, and that's, that's going to be a big issue. And people who are uh, buying products today, they're going to have to make, uh, change their behavior going yeah. into the supermarkets, looking for products that are on offer maybe for that day. And there's always a cubby hole in, in, a, in a supermarket with products that are not labeled, that are not on any brochures that are available at very, very low cost to have to get out that day. So behavioral change is something that uh, we haven't predicted. Yeah. And, and whatever you feel is expensive in the grocery store, it's only going to get more expensive at the restaurant you like to visit because they, they have very little overhead um, and, and their prices are all going up too. You know, I'm a big proponent, John, of buy local, um, you know, but if you were advising, you know, those in charge who have to actually do something about this and clearly they don't know what they're doing, what would you be telling uh, the Trudeau government right now? I would say, look at what Quebec is doing uh, at McGill. We're working with the Quebec government and uh, they have an initiative going on, which is a technology platform. It's sort of like a yellow pages where they're trying to connect local farmers with local mm. food service and even local That's consumers. So, yeah, so Quebec has actually taken this uh, by the nose and they, they want to reduce the, the dependency on other provinces and other countries and fully yeah. optimize the products that they have. And in the, at the same time, reduce food loss and, and food waste uh, because it has to travel less far. So I, I would say that the federal government needs to look at what Quebec is doing as a great example of eat local, support local products. That's a, that's a great, great idea. That would be something I could totally get behind. Help the farmers out and bring it local. And uh, don't be worried if you buy a little bit of a bruised apple or a scraped apple. They're still good. And nonetheless, we've got the best. Uh, John, I'm up against the clock. Very much appreciate your time on this. I know we'll be talking a lot about this in the future. No problem. Thank you, Alex. There you go. John Keogh joining us. I think that's a great idea. Work with the farmers. Get local. Bring it in. Grow it here. Forget importing it all the time. Will we allow the backward slide of rights and democracy to continue unchecked? Or will we, together, together, have a vision and the vision, not just a vision, the vision and courage to once more lead the march of human progress and human freedom forward. 
Well, that's President Biden hosting the Summit for Democracies involving 100 uh, countries, including our country today. And uh, certainly there'll be a lot for the leaders to talk about, but it's always the action that is missing from our democratic leaders these days. And it's this inaction on these thuggish authoritarian regimes that has allowed their tyrannical tentacles to spread through the world unchecked and start this backslide of our democracies that Biden just referred to. You know, you look back, uh, Iran blows up a plane killing all on board, including Canadians. And hey, where's the accountability? We've got people here who lost loved ones on that plane and they are still waiting for answers from anybody. Doesn't happen. You got China openly carrying out a genocide on minority Muslims. Uh, they kidnap people. They steal our state secrets. They interfere with our elections. They took control of Hong Kong and now threaten to take Taiwan. And they do it because they can. We've got Russia right now amassing thousands of troop, uh, troops along the Ukraine border, and it's ready for a war. And you got NATO leaders twisting themselves into a knot trying to figure out, well, how did they miss Russia amassing this uh, preparation for an attack? It's, it's crazy. Let me bring Terry Glavin into this conversation, author, journalist for the Ottawa Citizen and columnist for the National Post, also a contributing editor of Four McLean's magazine, and somewhere in there he also fits in time to be senior fellow with the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. Good to have you. Hi, Alex. You wrote a terrific piece um, in the Ottawa Citizens talking as democracy continues its global backsliding, such modest gestures in the face of authoritarian states are all we can expect. For now, I thought it was a really great piece because, you know, we are we're doing the bare minimum symbolic gestures. But it's it's this, I think, that that allows for the demise of our own well-being in the future. Yeah, and I it's uh, one of the things that I think uh, I'm heartened by is that the Biden administration does appear to be taking this seriously. Uh, uh, Biden did make this kind of, you know, the signature of his foreign policy uh, platform. And um, it's uh, something I've been following for the last uh, decade and a half. Um, It's uh, in which, by the way, we have seen uh, democracy worldwide in retreat. And that retreat has has become an absolute rout. Uh, 15, we're now in the 16th year. Actually, we're now in the 18th year of no progress. 16th year of democracies retreat globally and the advance of police states and mafia states uh, and the impunity that the, uh, the the leaders of those states and those and their cronies have in walking among us, among us in buying up Canadian real estate mm-hmm. um, in uh, bombing uh, every city in Syria in turning Myanmar into a charnel charnel house. You know, it really is later than we think, I believe. And and it looks, I mean, I'm heartened. I don't want to be mean about this or cynical. What I'm saying is at least the Biden administration is paying some serious attention to this. And there are other countries around the world and other movements around the world that have, have really stepped up to the plate on this. The Baltic states, little Lithuania, the Czech Republic, mm. um, and Taiwan, my God. For, yeah. for a leader like Tsai Ing-wen, I would give my right arm. She is running probably the most thriving democracy on the face of the earth, the most competent uh, head of state that I'm aware of anywhere on earth, uh, a rambunctious, wonderful uh, little island democracy there, and they are under constant threat 
from uh, invasion from China, which is constantly monkeying with their trade relations with other countries. And uh, I mean, China is actually a very important trading partner for Taiwan. And yet Taiwan has somehow managed to stand up for itself. And mm-hmm. so we do see reasons for hope. And, you know, there are really gallant struggles that people are waging around the world and in Africa, in the Middle East, uh, to sort of maintain some semblance of decency uh, and civility and democracy against savagery and barbarism. And uh, I'm really glad that Biden's starting to pay attention. I wish Canadians would. I really wish they would, too, which is why I always repost your your work, because, you know, a lot of people don't even realize like Russia is poised and could go to war like within the next two weeks. We've got China literally just getting away with with murder. Uh, and we seem to have a government in this country that has no interest in foreign affairs, period. And a minister who has no business being a minister of foreign affairs, who is making a lot of phone calls right now. Um, but, you know, NATO just cut us out of a, an alliance. Our five I partners are moving right by us. And, and I'm not trying to be rude to, to Melanie Jolie, but she has no business in this particular portfolio. Uh, and this is the person that's going to, you know, go up against all these geopolitical threats. I mean, it's a real thing. And I, I don't know if Biden will push Trudeau. I certainly hope he does. But at some point, we're going to have to stand up. Yeah, there's no love lost between Biden and, and Trudeau. Biden, unfortunately, has has he appears to have nothing but contempt for, for mm-hmm. our prime minister. I hope I'm wrong about that. But, um, you know, the very corporations, state, state-owned Chinese corporations that are uh, luring any number of developing companies into these debt traps and taking over their court facilities and monkeying with their, uh, their, their, their ruling systems and supporting uh, strongmen regimes uh, are the very people and the very corporations that are represented uh, by the Canada-China Business Council. You know, we complain mm-hmm. about we always we always talk about Trump as an example of a guy <laughs> yeah. who was really soft on on dictators and was too friendly to Vladimir Putin and so on. Uh, what imagine how Canadian, imagine how we would have reacted if we had learned that after the election, when Trump was elected, the first thing he did was he appointed the head of the Russian American Business Council to name his cabinet and then saw to it that that person got the most senior position in the United States Senate. Well, that's what we did in Canada. That's what Justin mm-hmm. Trudeau did with the head of the Canada-China Business Council. Um, the, uh, you know, this is, I guess the thing that really is annoying for most Canadians, and all the polls show this, is yeah, that it's yeah. the, these guys get away with this stuff. And it's the impunity. And, and, and we just sort of sleepwalking through this idea that if you show up to international meetings with, you know, colorful socks, that somehow things will be nicer. Vladimir Putin is calling up reservists. He's massing as many as 175,000 troops near the border with Ukraine, uh, setting the stage for what you properly describe as the possible invasion of the country full on far and away worse than what happened in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea. So, you know, it is, it is a bit much that, and I, I, I want to give Melanie Jolie the benefit of the doubt. You know, she's a, she's new to politics at this level. Uh, she's new to a cabinet post of this importance. 
Um, I, I, I really do want to give her the benefit of the doubt, but you're quite right when you say that this country doesn't take foreign policy seriously. We also don't recognize, recognize the foreign policy implications in any number of economic and social and cultural policies that the federal government has jurisdiction in. Um, I mean, you know, look at last the last federal election uh, mm. when you had the New Democratic Party trying to say something articulate about China. You had the Conservatives with a robust policy on China that mm. was supported by the Hong Kong Democrats, by the Uyghurs, and so on. The Chinese, the, the, the Liberal Party had an 82-page uh, election platform didn't mention mentioned China in passing once in one sentence had nothing there was no China policy which by the way we have been promised time and again yeah. three yeah. years now oh we're yeah. gonna have a reset on China there has been no reset on China everybody cut the government slack when the mics were being kidnapped so oh maybe they're being really nice to the government in Beijing because they're trying to do some deal. Well, they're still being nice to the government in Beijing. They were nice to the government in Beijing before the mics were kidnapped. Nothing has changed. And, uh, you know, I, I, my viewpoint on this is shared by 87% of Canadians. There's no, I'm not mm -hmm. a radical on this issue. Uh, there's, you know, I'm a pretty normal guy. But it is my business. It's my job to know a little bit about this, 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 this whole sphere of federal policy. And it is, it's odd that we're just AWOL. Canada is AWOL. We're very, very, you know, we're barely a presence in NATO. We don't meet uh, the commitments that we've made to peacekeeping, even though I don't think they're all that important. We're the laughingstock of the G7. There's no country in the G7 that is kowtowed to China, just for instance, as much as Canada has. We have lost the confidence of our partners in the Five Eyes intelligence sharing network. We still haven't made a decision on Huawei. There's something wrong. There's definitely something wrong at the federal level. The easiest thing they've had to do is uh, this diplomatic ban, but I think we both know that 2022 is going to come very fast at this government with some major, major issues that they can't walk away from. So we will re rely on you to write about them and read about them and keep them in our, uh, in our perspective. Terry, very much appreciate your time. Okay, thanks, Alex. That is Terry Glavin. I did that one for you, Mom. I know you love his writing, but uh, yeah, Terry Glavin has a great piece in the Ottawa Citizen on the backslide of our democracies. And so can't keep ignoring this because it actually has consequences. Thank you for listening. You, of course, can join me live starting 6.30 sharp Monday through Friday. I'm Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio.